Welcome to episode 96. You're going to find today's episode very interesting if you've ever had challenges with binge eating, sugar addiction, or eating disorders. You might be one of those people that feels like positive self-talk and the whole positivity movement, whilst it makes you feel lovely and fluffy and amazing, it's actually totally ineffective. And if you feel that way, you're not alone. On today's show, we talk about why positive self-talk is not always helpful for many people. And also, we tie it into the deep brain function so you can understand exactly why particular psychological tricks are often fleeting or worse, totally ineffective. As well, we, t- we share a totally different method for managing relationships with food, which for me was something I had never heard of before. <laughs> and we touch on some tools that will help you navigate the existential crisis that the world is going through right now. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? How you doing? It is my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy life that they truly want before December 2020. Now, before we talk binge eating with today's amazing guest, I need to conduct some formalities by sending out a virtual gift of a green smoothie. Just imagine it entering your life right now. And a big thank you to my healthy How to Not Get Sick and Die friends that we have out in France. This is the second time I've got an email uh, just this week saying that we have had a nice number of you tuning into the podcast in recent weeks. So a big thank you for joining us here and assisting the growth of this show by sharing it with your friends, family, uh, and and anyone on social media. So a big, big thank you. Since the holiday plans that I was meant to be on right now are not happening because, well, you know why, maybe we can catch up in 2021 or maybe 2022 or 23. (laughs) Who knows how long, you know, whenever this debacle finally fades away. But a big thank you to France for being lovely, loyal listeners. Very grateful. Okay, to today's podcast interview. I'm really looking forward to this conversation as I know there are a lot of places that it could go. And I want to introduce you to Dr. Glenn Livingston, PhD, whom is a veteran psychologist and is author of the hugely successful book, Never Binge Again, with over 600,000 Amazon Kindle downloads. After a personal journey out of obesity, this is what I love about Glenn, he knows what's up because he himself has been there. He spent decades researching the psychology behind overeating and binge eating and developed a unique way of approaching food choices which has helped countless individuals to develop normal, healthy weight and a much more light-hearted relationship with food. This has transformed the lives of many. He advocates, and I know you listening, uh, this will resonate with you listening. He advocates eating whole real foods, but to be clear, is not promoting any specific diet, rather helping people to understand and overcome the seemingly locked into place drivers that lead to overeating. Glenn has a daily blog post with Psychology Today, and you've likely seen his work in many major media outlets, such as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun Times, the Indiana Star Ledger, the New York Daily News, ABC and CBS Radio and many, many more. Glenn has a unique story and method and I'm really excited to go deep on this. So, Glenn, a big warm welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and coincidentally, I've got two gallons of green smoothies on my desk right now, so maybe you're virtual smoothie worked <laughs> it did it just it traversed space and time and landed in america i i start most mornings making usually just one gallon but today i wanted to have something savory also so i've got one with tomatoes and greens and lemon and another one with uh, blueberries and grapes and all sorts of romaine lettuce <laughs> that sounds great now we just need to get it over to france if you send me a ticket, I'm not averse. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you there in a couple of years, most likely. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you have a super unique story and method, and I'd love it if you could, we could just start by you sharing your journey, because I know it's particularly unique. Well, you know, if, if um, first of all, I think you should know that I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work with overeaters. I am a guy who struggled very much himself. I, I always joke that if you happen to pass by the Woodbury Country Deli in Woodbury, Long Island, and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts, the odds are that I got there before you. <laughs> um, up until about 15 years, years ago, I had a big, serious problem with that. It, it started when I was about 17, and 
because I'm 6'4 and modestly muscular, I discovered that if I worked out for two hours a day, I could eat just about whatever I wanted to. You know, five, 6,000 calories a day was no problem. And I would have multiple pizzas. I would have boxes of muffins. I would have boxes of Pop-Tarts and chocolate and chips and anything you could imagine. And I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was um, more like a special trick I discovered. Yeah. And I was really happy about it. I I'd made myself into a big uh, eating, exercising, sleeping, and pooping machine. <laughs> and I... I didn't think that was a problem. I was still thin and happy and um, doing the things that teenagers do. But when I took on the responsibilities of adulthood and I was in graduate school and I was married and I was commuting two hours a day in each direction, I found that I just didn't have the time to work out two hours a day. I could barely work out for, you know, a half hour twice a week. And despite that, I felt like the food had a hold of me and I just kept eating like I was eating. And I got, I got heavy slowly at that time. But what was worse for me was that the food was interfering with my being a good psychologist. I, I very much wanted to be a good psychologist my whole life. It was most important to me. I come from a family of 17 therapists. And, Whoa. Well, yeah, whenever... Um, when something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> I can imagine that makes for an emotional yeah. Christmas experience. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't just my immediate family, by the way. It was my mom and my dad and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and my sister and yeah. my stepmom and my stepdad. And just everybody was a therapist. Wow. So, you know, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and... Anybody who really knows much about psychology knows that it's it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, there there are a lot of things you have to know to do a good job, but mostly you have to lend people your soul. You, you've you've got to be with it, there with them, body, mind, and soul, a hundred percent, because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I couldn't. I, I mean, I never lost anyone. I was, I guess, I made up for it by spending time. Afterwards, you know, thinking about and researching and talking to supervisors and stuff. But so I never lost anyone, but I, I couldn't be there a hundred percent, and it really bothered me and it scared me because I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, "When can I get the next pizza?" Yeah. And um, so that that bothered me more than the weight in the beginning, and then the weight got to get a little out of hand, and I'd go up and down, and uh, the doctors were telling me that. My triglycerides were going to kill me. I think they were above 1,000 at one point. Um, I had, you know, a lot of manifestations of bad food, rosacea and eczema and psoriasis and acne. And, um, and, and, and I, was, um, I wasn't 100% present in my relationship. And so it really bothered me. And I went on a psychological quest. I think I had the assumption that you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And because of the family I grew up in, I figured that the problem must be I've got a hole in my heart. And if I could fill this hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And yeah, so I, I went to some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists and went to Overeaters Anonymous. I even conducted this 40,000 person study myself. I'll tell you how that came about in a minute. Um and I would get thinner for a while, and it was a very soulful journey that I don't regret, but it didn't really help me with the binging. I would learn a couple of things, then I would get heavier, and then I'd learn a couple of things, and I'd get heavier. And eventually, there were three things. I wish this was a short story. I wish it wasn't, didn't take place over 30 years, but over the course of about 30 years, maybe just a little less, I came to the conclusion that I... That my binge eating, at least, and now I know millions of other people's, isn't really about a hole in my heart. It's more about um, and, and nurturing my inner wounded child back to health. It's it's more about needing to take charge and being like an alpha wolf, dealing with a challenger for leadership. And if you if you think about an alpha wolf and a wolf pack, the alpha wolf when someone challenge when another wolf challenges it, it doesn't say, "Oh my goodness, someone needs a hug," right? It says, get back in line or I'll kill you. 
Right, and it snarls and it growls and it asserts its dominance. Yeah. And here are the three things that made me realize that. One was that because I didn't commute and my ex-wife traveled for business all the time, I had a lot of time in my hands and I started a second career. I started consulting for the big food industry and the big pharma industry. And I, I wish that I didn't. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war, but that's what I did. And when I was doing that, big food in particular, I saw what was going on. It was, it was not quite as bad as it is now, but they're spending millions, if not billions of dollars on rocket scientists to engineer these hyperpalatable food-like substances. There's, these are concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins, and they're all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And if you do that, the result is that you go back for more and more and more. As a matter of fact, the result is that you do that at the expense of your survival needs. Um, you know, there are some studies. These are analogous studies. They're not 100% perfect analogies, but there's a whole set of studies done in the 50s and 60s, starting with psychologists Milner and Olds, where we looked at what happens when you hijack the pleasure response of the reptilian brain. And they put, um, you know, they put electrodes, they started with rats, and they put electrodes in the, you know, the deepest pleasure center in the brain. And they wired those electrodes to a lever that the rats could push whenever they wanted to. Do you want to guess what happened? <laughs> I know this study. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they pressed the lever thousands of times all day long to the exclusion of their survival needs. They pressed the lever rather than eating, if, even if they were starving. Nursing mother rats abandoned their pups to press the lever thousands of times per day. They would crawl over painful electrical grids to press the lever. It's like the rats forgot about what they needed to survive because there was this short circuit in their brain that said, no, 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 the pleasure is over here. And, you know, pleasure is designed to tell us what we need to survive. That's why we feel pleasure. Sex feels so good and apples taste so great because we're supposed to be more interested in those than, you know, other passing things by that are not going to give us the... Um, the things that we need to procreate and, and, you know, sustain our species. And what I realized was that, you know, you could walk out of McDonald's and see Burger King across the street, and maybe they're not any, maybe there are no electrodes in our brains, but it's kind of like there are chemical electrodes. It's kind, it's kind of like these companies have given us and I don't mean to just single those two out because it goes on all across the industry. Um, it's kind of like they've given us those pleasure buttons. And they've, they've shifted our belief, not, not consciously, but they've shifted our gut-level belief about what we really need to survive to the point that we're looking, we're looking for it in bags and boxes and containers. Um, I, I remember the VP of a major food bar manufacturer told me that his most profitable insight was taking the vitamins out of the bar and putting it in the packaging instead. And they made the packaging look vibrant and colorful because in nature, a diversity of vibrant colors, like shiny, vibrant colors, signals the diversity of nutrients. Think about eating the rainbow. Think about you know, the diversity of nutrients available in a multicolored salad, with green lettuce and purple cabbage and red tomatoes and yellow carrots and blueberries and all sorts of antioxidants. That's why we like color. But in this case, the companies had figured that out and they were using that in order to fake us out because they'd actually taken the vitamins out of the bar. What they were giving us was less healthy. They were making us think it was more healthy. And that's why we're all looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. We think that that's where the good stuff is. And, um, you know, and it's not. We've been fooled. And then what happens is when, 
when you overstimulate the pleasure center, when you overstimulate the taste buds and the you know dopaminergic system, it does something called downregulation. It becomes less sensitive to the natural stimuli in nature. So if you have a chocolate bar every day, by the end of a month, an apple is not going to taste as sweet to you. You're not going to be able to taste the subtle differences in the different types of um, species of apples, Gala versus Fuji versus um, you know, delicious apple. You're not going to taste the subtle differences in vegetables. And those, those pleasure responses to fruits and vegetables are designed to allow you to detect the diversity of nutrients that you need to survive. Um, but without that, you know, your, your body thinks that it wants the, the bags and boxes and containers, which leaves your body starving and leads you, leads you having to have more calories to get the same level of nutrients. And most people will say that they don't like fruit and vegetables anymore. They just don't want fruit and vegetables because their, um, their survival drives have been hijacked. Even though everybody knows that in order to lose weight, you got to eat more produce. Most people know that. People will say they don't like it because their systems have downregulated. The good news is your system will your system will upregulate back to normal mostly within a couple of months if you get a lot of the junk out of your system. Um, yeah. So I saw that and I said, this has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough when I was little or that I was in a bad marriage or anything like that. This was um, just a serious external force aligned against me. And I looked at the advertising industry and I said, they're sending five to 7,000 messages a year at us through the internet and the airwaves about food. And maybe a half dozen of them were about fruit and vegetables, eating more fruit and vegetables. And so most people think that doesn't affect them. They say, it's just advertising. (laughs) But what the advertising industry knows is that advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. And, and so that's another force deeply aligned against me. And then the, the addiction treatment industry, because I spent some time in Overuse Anonymous, which is similar to a lot of the addiction treatment industry, they will tell you that you can't abstain, you can't, you can't quit even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time, and that these are forces and compulsions that are irresistible impulses to most humans. And if you really want to, if you really want to, to eat healthy, then you have to get off them by attending these meetings and having a sponsor and kind of acting like a dependent little child. But then if you look at the research on that, um, you know, the, like the 12-step, the, uh, the research on the 12-step and addiction treatment programs is really pretty bad. It's, it says that it's mostly at, at parity or worse than doing nothing at all. Wow. <laughs> so... So there's all this confusion. Like there's, there's all this confusion. There, there's constant advertising. There's constant stimulation with progressively more palatable, irresistible foods. And it's, it's really a perfect storm of external forces and societal pressure to get us to overeat. And I wonder how anybody can eat well in today's society. Absolutely. There's this bad stuff, quote unquote bad stuff. I know that's bad words to use, but it's just everywhere. We don't even recognize the good stuff anymore. Right. So there were two other things that really brought me to this conclusion that I had to be an alpha wolf. One was that that I was looking at the neurology of addiction and I recognized that mostly it's the lower brain, the reptilian brain, that's responding to addiction. And that, that makes sense. It's the most primitive part of the brain that's responsible for, you know, feast and famine, fight or flight, emergency responses. And that's the part that seems to take over um, and throw all your best thinking out of the window because it says, you know, just hand over the chocolate or nobody gets hurt. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm joking about that, but people always ask me, how is it that I can know exactly what to eat and what would be healthy? And I have all these reasons and I write them all down, but then at the moment of impulse, it all goes out the window. Well, it's because your reptilian brain is activated. And here's the interesting thing about those responses. The reptilian brain doesn't know love. It doesn't. It's, it looks at something in the environment and it's kind of like a college drinking game. Do I eat it? 
do I mate with it or do I kill it? That's, that's the level of um, relationship that the reptilian brain has to stimuli in the environment, including food. To eat native- Which doesn't factor in, did my mom love me enough as a child? <laughs> right. Right. I'm, tr- I'm trying to love myself in, and it has nothing to do with um, the part of the brain that, that's responsible for this problem. It's, it's the mammalian brain on t- that evolved on top of that. You could even say God put it there. It doesn't matter. The mammalian brain that's on top of it that says, well, before you eat me or kill that thing, what impact does this have on your relationships? What impact does this have on the people that you love in your tribe? And then it's the neocortex or the highest level of the brain that says, before you eat me or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your long-term goals and the kind of person you're trying to be in the world? And, you know, everything that you value as a human, like spirituality and music and art and um, projects and integration and writing and all of those things we consider to be very human and civilized. And so I said, I said, this has nothing to do with love. And then the last thing that happened was that I, I did this study. I was getting paid a lot of money to do these big studies. And so I knew how to do them and internet clicks were cheap back, cheap back then. So I set up this long-term study and over several years, I did a survey, I wound up having about 40,000 people take it. And I would intercept them when they were searching for answers to stressful problems in their life. And I would ask them, what are they stressed about in their life? And I would ask them what foods they turn to and have difficulty stopping once they start. And I found three interesting things. One was that people who struggled with chocolate like I did. My binges always started with chocolate. They progressed to pizza and Pop-Tarts and donuts and stuff, but always started with chocolate. And people who struggled with chocolate like, like I did, they, they were much more prone to feeling lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like chips and, you know, and, and pretzels, they tended to struggle with stress at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things like bread and bagels and pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, that's fascinating. So let me, before I, you know, do anything with patients or start writing about this or anything like that, let me, let me figure this out for myself. And I called my mom because I figured, you know, she's, she's not only my mom, but she's also a therapist and she's a chocoholic herself. And I said, mom, I found this really interesting thing about people that struggle with chocolate like we do. They said that we're lonely or depressed or, or um, brokenhearted. And, you know, I can resonate with that somewhat because I'm not so happy in the marriage. And, you know, I am feeling a little depressed and lonely and brokenhearted. And I'm wondering, you know, I don't think that that could be the whole part of the story. There must be something, some pattern that sets this up from childhood. And she gets this horrible sound in her voice. And she says, Glenn, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, Mom, what is it? It doesn't matter. She goes, I'm so sorry. I said, Mom, it's 40 years ago, whatever it was. This was a while ago. So it's 40 years ago, whatever it was. You know, I forgive you. I love you. I just want to know. I just want to figure this out. And she proceeds to tell me that when I was one year old in 1965, that my dad was a captain in Vietnam and they were threatening to send him to the army. And my mother was terrified because she, you know, had a small child at home and she was trying to get pregnant with my sister. And, um, and she was afraid she was going to be an army widow with two small kids. And, you know, she loved my dad and she was going to miss him. At the same time, my grandfather, her dad, had just gotten out of prison and he was guilty and she didn't know it and she'd idolized him her whole life and he'd been her salvation and so she really fell hard when she found out he was doing these things and turns out that when i would come running to her for food or you know healthy food or some love or to play or just for a hug she would say glenn go get your Bosco. And she kept some chocolate syrup in a chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And she sent me running off for the chocolate Bosco syrup. And you would think that right there in front of me is the reason why, right? There's the original story. This, Yeah. And so if we were in a movie, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and we would um, forgive each other. And I would never have problems with chocolate again and neither, neither would she. But turns out that 
although it was a good conversation to have. I learned all sorts of things about my mom and what was going on in her life. I learned all things, sorts of things about my own life. I did forgive myself. I was softer. That, that harsh voice after a binge became much softer. But the actual chocolate eating got worse. And the reason the chocolate eating got worse was because there seemed to be this voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn? You're right. And our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more right now. It was this voice of justification, right? Right. And at that point, that's when things really flipped for me. Then I said to myself, well, maybe it's not about the emotions. Think of the emotions like a big fire. And you, you could have a big fire roaring in a fireplace. If it's in a living room and the fireplace is good, and well-contained, then that's an asset, not a liability. That becomes some place where people gather around and tell stories and they laugh and they hug and they cry and they bond and it becomes the center of hearth and home. But if there's even one hole in that fireplace and an ash can get out, it can burn down the house. So I started to think maybe this voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace. Maybe it doesn't matter if I'm lonely or depressed. I mean, it matters in terms of the quality of my life, but in terms of fixing the binge eating, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, maybe what I need to do is figure out how to stop that voice of justification from poking holes in the fireplace. And here's the embarrassing part, and this is how I got better. Um, I was a little embarrassed because I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I've done tens of millions of dollars of consulting and all that. But in the end, I got better by deciding I had a pig inside of me. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a vegan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I decided to call my, my uh, reptilian brain, you know, the seat of that feast and famine emergency response. I decided to call that my pig. And I decided that, um, I was going to draw very bright lines, very clear lines in the sand between healthy and unhealthy eating so I would know exactly what I was aiming at. Because like my grandfather used to say, if you don't know what you're aiming at, you'll probably hit something else. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. <laughs> right? So I would say something like, I will never eat chocolate Monday through Friday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends. And then if it was a Wednesday, for example, and I was in a... Starbucks, and I saw a chocolate bar with my name on it at the counter, and this little voice in my head would say, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough today. It's just as easy to start tomorrow. You're not going to gain any weight. And besides, chocolate grows um, on a cocoa plant, and that's therefore a vegetable. Um, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my pig. And my pig is squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Right. And you know, as Maddie, as ridiculous and crude as that sounds, as primitive as that sounds, it started to wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds I needed to make the right decision. And I wish I could say I immediately made the right decision all the time. I didn't. But what did happen immediately was that I recognized that I wasn't powerless. There, it was not a mysterious force anymore. It wasn't um, this voice of wonder that, you know, made me feel like I'd fallen into some other world where I couldn't control my hands and my arms and my mouth and my legs and my tongue. And, you know, that it was as if some alien force was pouring chocolate into my mouth. <laughs> it just, I just recognized that this was my free will and I could choose what I wanted to do. And over time, since I also recognized that nobody was telling me what to do, I was making my own rules, I said, well, why don't I set the bar low enough that I'll actually follow the rule? And maybe what's most important, at least at the moment, because this was at a time when it wasn't super urgent that I lost weight. I figured it could take a couple of months if I had to. I said, what if what's most important is that I'm able to embrace planned eating? And I don't, I don't have to be at the whim, be, be the slave to my uh, emotions and my impulses about what I'm going to eat. I could actually plan out what I want to do. And let's start with some very simple rules that I could actually follow. And slowly but surely, I stopped breaking the rules and I got better. And I experimented with different types of rules where you could 
add things as opposed to take them away. So, you know, I'll always start the day with a pure green smoothie, for example, with um, at least 16 ounces of a pure green smoothie. Or, you know, I will, um, I will never go to bed at night without having drank um, eight pure glasses of spring water, something like that. And I experimented with all these rules and, and I got better. Um, slowly but surely, and not not all at once. It wasn't one of these. I mean, I lost eighty pounds altogether, I think. But it wasn't one of these. Um, wow, that's great. I, I don't have my top weight for sure because I stopped weighing myself because I got mad at the scale. Um, I'm pretty sure it was about two hundred and eighty. The top one I have on a scale was two fifty seven. Yeah, and I, you know, I got myself down to about two hundred. So, so um, that's my story. And you know, as I was. Getting divorced, I was doing other things. I was not working with eating disordered clients. I was not going to do this at all. Um, I was a, you know, originally I'm a couples and family therapist, and I had a large practice on Long Island, and then I was running a coach training organization, and I was doing those things, and, and still doing a tiny bit of consulting, and um, and then I was getting divorced, and as I was getting divorced, I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And, you know, through all my business dealings. And um, the CEO said that they wanted to publish their own book so they could do some marketing experiments and prove that they were valuable to more attractive authors. And I said, okay, um, well, I'm getting divorced anyway. And so I'm looking for something meaningful to put my time into. And I took, um, I took the journal that I'd kept for eight years of me versus my inner pig. I guess I left that part out. For eight years, I kept a journal about whatever the pig said and why it was wrong. So, so for example, it's not just as easy to start tomorrow. You can't just start your diet tomorrow because when you experience a craving and you reinforce the, the craving by indulging it, so you say, I want chocolate, therefore I have chocolate, it turns out that that neurological groove gets stronger. The principle of neuroplasticity says what uh, fires together, wires together. And so the groove is deeper the next day, so it's going to be harder to quit tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you need to stop digging. So that, those types of piggy conversations and the logic I use to disempower them, uh, I kept the journal for eight years, and the CEO of this publishing company asked me to turn it into a book, so I did. And I sent it to him, and two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeds to lose 100 pounds um, using this method himself. <laughs> and that, not, <laughs> That's not all amazing. It's over a couple, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so along the way, we published the book. And, you know, we're both in marketing our whole lives. So we kind of know what we're doing. We figured we'd get some traction. But we had no idea how much it was going to resonate with people. And um, now we have almost a million readers. And we've written seven more books. And... Um, got this big coaching network and people still don't know my name once in a while they'll recognize me in a bookstore and they'll they'll come up to me and they'll point at me and they'll go pig guy pig guy so picture this right unlocking your potential conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself that's what we do inside the healthy mums collective facebook group which is currently free to join If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you received my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 
<laughs> How beautiful. What a beautiful way to be uh, recognized. Especially if you're on a first date. That's, that's a really good thing to, to have happen. So <laughs> anyway, that's my story, Maddie. Thanks so much for feeling comfortable to share that. I, I, there's so much to pull out of that. And I guess I want to start by like how, I mean, you obviously grew up around psychologists and psychotherapists and you are one yourself. So you have uh, access to resources that I guess many people don't, uh, both throughout their childhood and, and as an adult. But I'm wondering how does one determine whether they take the savage alpha approach uh, or the wounded self-love approach? And is it one or the other? Like, I'm sure that there's moments throughout each day where, you know, each approach would be relevant depending on one's individual status and past. Well, the thing is that it's not loving to yourself to keep binging. It's, it's not loving to yourself to eat beyond your own best judgment. And so they're not really diametrically opposed the way that they would seem. I actually think that to address the practical issue is what makes it possible to address the emotional issues. Um, Every time I was running into chocolate because I felt depressed or lonely or brokenhearted, I was actually suppressing the feeling that I have. It's it's hard for the nervous system to conduct the emotions when it's overloaded with... um, unnatural substances and, you know, supersized stimulation. Um, And so I actually couldn't love myself more with the chocolate in my system uh, because it made it impossible to expose whatever pain I was experiencing. And it, it, if you think about it, it actually kept me in the bad marriage because I, I refused to feel the pain of what I was going through. And I was covering it over with the chocolate instead. And so I was actually engaged in self-harm on an emotional level. And if you ask any therapist, they'll tell you they would much rather have a patient who is not covering over their feelings with the overeating behavior. So really, I think that the idea of um, loving yourself thin... I think it's a good idea, but I think it puts the cart before the horse. I think you have to stop the behavior so that you can love yourself and heal those those inner child's wounds. I also think that it's not 100% necessary to take the second step. So some people really don't want to spend years, you know, analyzing their childhood and figuring out why they're, um, you know, why they're lonely or depressed. Some people just naturally feel better when they start eating well. And sometimes the feelings are there, but sometimes they find that the feelings weren't necessarily caused by the binging, but re- the binging was reinforcing the feelings. See, if I eat chocolate every time I feel lonely or depressed, guess what my pig figures out pretty quickly? If it can make me feel lonely or depressed, it's going to get some chocolate. And there are all these animal studies in operant conditioning which show that you can condition and reinforce the byproducts of emotion and get animals to live in that more emotional state. We assume they're in an emotional state. So, you know, anxiety is associated with um, heightened heart rate and respiration and in some animals perspiration and, um, you know, galvanic skin response and blood pressure. And... If you, they did this with baboons, if they give them a food reward every time that their blood pressure is elevated, well, guess what? Those baboons, those baboons learn to have high blood pressure all the time. Um, so if you give yourself a food reward every time that you feel anxious, your body is learning to feel progressively more anxious. And so the idea that you have to solve the anxiety before you stop having the food to cover it over is just the reverse of what you need to do. So, so I, I do find that for a lot of people, the in-depth analysis is not really necessary. It's interesting. It, it can be valuable in a lot of other ways, but it's not always necessary. Um, it's like, you know, if you're smacking yourself in the head with a, stam- with a hammer, then stop. <laughs> you <know? It's, laughs> and, and, you, and you might feel better. You might feel better just because you're not smacking yourself in the head with a hammer anymore. You might, you might not have to, f- have to figure out what you're repeating from your childhood or anything like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as you were talking there, uh, like you were sort of referring to the fact that the self-love approach of eating the chocolate is actually not love. It's it's you're disguising a harmful activity. It sort of makes me think about there's a lot of different people, especially on social media, that are really representing the idea of 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 self-loving their you know like self-love in the concept of I'm big and I and I love it and I'm amazing. But it's to me it always brings up this this transition which i think you kind of touched on from self-love to self-lie and these people are metabolically they're not healthy and and you know it's really difficult to be 150 kilograms or 300 pounds and be metabolically healthy and not preparing yourself for a disease so whilst i i fully support people loving themselves and i think getting through the journey you, you know you sort of got to love the journey uh i do think uh yeah self-love sort of turns into self-lie as an excuse or as a surrender flag to the process. It's a really good way to, to put it. I, you know, I ha- there, there's this old saying that if a man doesn't mind his belly, he doesn't mind much else, or a woman doesn't mind her belly, she doesn't mind much else. And I think that might be true to some extent, and I, I really am against the notion of fat shaming. I think people need to be loved at every size. I think people are deserving of love at every size. And I think that our society has both both created and then shamed the obesity to kind of, you know, we we point our fingers at people who are obese and say they're diseased and they have a really serious problem when I think we should be pointing our fingers at the at the industry that's creating the problem. Um, Absolutely. So I do want to alleviate the shame. Um, and I also think that it's very important to love yourself now before you've arrived at your ideal weight. Because it, you know, if you if you want to to sustain an ideal weight, if you want to sustain a good life, then you can't say, "Well, I don't deserve love until I get there." And a lot of the manifestations of that, people will say, I "Look awful." I say, "No, you don't. You don't look awful. You look heavy. You don't look awful. You look heavy." Um, People can be very beautiful at, at larger sizes. Absolutely. But I don't think that I've ever met a happy fat person. Besides the fact that you can't be metabolically healthy at, at a high weight, I don't know that I've met a person when they really get down to it and they confess what's going on for them who isn't upset that it's hard for them to play with their grandkids on the floor and wishes that they could keep up with people on a hike and you know was concerned about their blood pressure or getting diabetes like their mother did or, you know, the, um, the increased risk of, um, you know, cancer and heart attacks and strokes. I, I don't, I don't know anybody who doesn't live with that unhappiness if they're really overweight. So, um, I think this notion of a happy fat person, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you that people should be loved at every size. Like the sort of, you know, the body is just the vehicle for the personality and the personality is what we should love. Totally agree. I guess, uh, you know, when I'm talking about people on social media, I guess, you know, people just perpetuating that uh, improper uh, sort of presenting an improper or incorrect tool set to people that are in a similar situation is essentially setting themselves or setting many thousands of people up to go down a road which is percent potentially more disempowering and more painful and more unhappy. That's what I think, Jim. Well, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> <laughs> you must be a smart guy, Maddie. Oh, I just get to hang out on podcasts with amazing people like you. I don't know if it's uh, my own intelligence. <laughs> but being a podcast, being a podcast host, really, it enriches you, doesn't it? It really does. It's made my listening skills so much better, which the women in my life have, uh, you know, gladly told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if, so if you're having trouble with a relationship, you should start a podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Active listening. I'm all about it now. <laughs> it's great. As well, I should, I should definitely credit my own psychologists, uh, you know, and I think it's important for men to talk about the fact that, you know, like I see, I see a psychologist, I've seen many, they've been very amazing throughout my life and my development and journey. And, and yeah, that's, that's another tool that's allowed me sort of some emotional quotient increases uh, over the years. Can I tell you a story? Of course you can. That's what we're all about. <laughs> when I was a boy, my dad sat me down and said, Glenn, if you want to work things out in life, get into therapy. Go see a psychologist. 
And then he said, if you really want to work him out, you should become a therapist, which I did. But so as I was about to turn 16, all my friends were getting cars. Um, and I said I wanted to go see a therapist instead. So I, I got a shrink for my 16th birthday instead of getting a car for my 16th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> That's unique. Because <laughs> I, I always figured you, you can't pick yourself up by your own shirt collar. And it's very easy to become myopic and stuck in your own perception of the world. And um, I've never, I mean, psychology is something that can fix you, quote unquote, like it, you know, I am a doctor. I, I don't function as a doctor in what I do now. I, I function more as a coach and an educator um, because I don't, I don't think that overeaters are broken or diseased. I think we've got healthy appetites that are corrupted by industry. Um, I always say there's some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache laughing all the way to the bank every time you look for love in the bottom of a box or bag or a box or a container. Um, Ironically overweight himself. Ironically overweight themselves. Yes. A lot, a lot of them are. A lot of them are. Um, but, but I, I've always looked at, um, I've always looked at, at psychotherapy, not so much as something that fixes you or is a treatment that's applied to you, though it is when you do psychotherapy, it really is a treatment. I really am a doctor with a patient. But I thought the real value is really more along the lines of, of coaching for life improvements and self-actualization. And, and um, I learned as I get older that, you know, most people don't think like that in our culture. It's, it's a more sophisticated way of looking at things. It is. But um, now I, I think I, I, I don't think I would ever be without a therapist and a coach. I, I, you know, I have a mastermind group of people that call me on my BS, tell me that I'm full of it. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a therapist I still see once a month who's knows me for 30 years and he's not the guy who helped me with food. He helped me with everything else in my life, but I couldn't, I couldn't work it out with him with food. So I stopped talking to him about food. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a guy, he's, he's 80 years old, I think 75, 80 years old. And he, he's got, um, he's got more experience than anybody I know seeing, seeing patients and, you know, to get his perspective and you know, not have to trust my own entirely. It's, it's tremendous. I'm thinking of the listeners and the tools that they can take away from our conversation. I'm thinking for a lot of people out there, they definitely have that friend or that parent or that, you know, auntie or uncle that is sort of like their pseudo therapist. So when I totally agree that having a therapist always is a great idea and, you know, it's it's very much a long-term transformational mindset that you have to have in order to adopt that as part of your normal routine. But I'm thinking of everybody that out there that sort of says, oh, I talked to this person, they're kind of like my therapist. Um, Do you encourage people to hire professionals or is it okay to have that person in your life that you just, that's really more of a counselor that you just offload to? If you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish in your life and your life is going the way you want it to and you feel like you are, um, you know, you're becoming all that you can be, then look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Right. Um, I don't, I don't think that a professional therapist is a requirement, but I do think that there are things that a professional can offer that, that a friend can't. Um, the moment that someone is more involved in your actual life, they have a stake in the decisions that you make and the um, feelings that they're willing to have you go through. And, you know, sometimes a doctor has to give you a shot, right? So, sometimes a professional has to tell you things that are going to make you feel bad. And I think that someone in a professional position with professional boundaries is in a better position to do that than than a friend. Um, I also think that there are curative dynamics that can occur in a professional relationship that can't really occur in a friendly relationship. Um, To really understand your emotional patterns, you usually have to go through an interpersonal experience where you're projecting onto the other person in some way all of your ghosts from your past and things like that. And a professional knows how to allow you to do that, you know, without taking it personally, without, um, without getting in the way. 
so that you can resolve them in a way that you can't resolve with a friend. That said, I would say that it's only like one in 10 therapists that's really very good. I think that most therapists don't go through their own therapy. I think that uh, most therapists do a minimum of training. Um, I, you know, I prefer the people who are licensed and have requirements for continuing education and everything like that, but even that is minimum. So I, I, the question I tell people to ask if they're looking for a therapist is how do you decide when to intervene with the client? Like, when do you talk and when do they talk? How do you decide? And how do you know when the treatment is done? And if you ask those two questions and then you shop for a therapist in the same way that you would shop for a car, you know, look at a half a dozen or a dozen things and call people up and see if they'll talk to you for a few minutes and see if they've got a method to their madness. A lot of people are very nice and compassionate and you might like them, but that doesn't mean they know how to navigate through the problems that you're facing. So you you want someone who's really got a method to their madness and is willing to talk to you about it and who seems to have created an intellectual framework that they're going to navigate you through in order to move you forward in your life. That's That's what you want. And you want someone who knows how to evaluate when you're done. Like, um, see, because therapists don't really know how to market themselves, sometimes they hold on to clients for too long. And, um, you know, and, and as a consequence, people get into this. I don't know if you're old enough. You probably aren't old enough to remember the, the Saturday Night Live skit, The Roach Motel. No, don't remember that. So there, there was this commercial for, um, I think it was for one of the, um, pesticide traps. And it would, it, it would, I think it, maybe it was for raid. It would say roaches go in, but they don't go out. And then there was the Saturday Night Live skit that was a, a takeoff on that. I think it was, you know, the coach Mattel coaches go in and coaches don't go out. <laughs> and, and, and I think that sometimes, um, sometimes if therapists are too hungry for clients because they don't have the money, then it becomes a you know, a patient motel or a client motel, and they try to keep them when they really shouldn't be keeping them. And I don't, I don't think people should be kept in coaching or therapy for more than six months if they are getting a result. Um, I think you should be able to look back every six months and see that your life is better as a result of it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're developing a professional friend, and I'd rather you made real friends. Yeah, well, I think that's great advice. Absolutely, to hire somebody real and and have so, some way of determining what is and isn't working. Um, and, and speaking of what is and isn't working, um, this weird time in history that we're in right now, like people are binge eating beyond belief because we're trapped at home. We're not allowed to go anywhere. We're having existential crises left, right, and center about the world and the truth of the world, and uh, you know. A lot of people have lost employment. A lot of people have lost resources um, and they're trapped at home with the same people all day and every day. So in the context of binge eating, what before we wrap up, what, what can you share as potential uh, tools for people that are, are battling this, this sort of chapter of history? Because I know here in Australia, Kellogg's, the um, cereal brand in the first lockdown, and we're just, we just, just entered this week, the second lockdown, in the first lockdown, their sales went up 23% and they were already, you know, uh, super high and detrimental to everybody's health. So I'm wondering what you can share given this unique chapter of history. Yeah. Um, what I want you to recognize, first of all, I'm going to give you a resource where I'll outline the method in much more detail and you can hear several full length recorded sessions. So you see how to take people from feeling despairing and hopeless and confused about food to feeling empowered and excited and, and powerful and hopeful um, in just one session. So I recorded a bunch of sessions and I'll give you a set of food plan starter templates that work for any, any particular diet philosophy. Um, and I'll give you a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format if you want it. That's at neverbingeagain.com and you click the big red button. But um, what I want you to know about the pandemic in particular is that there are two things that are pushing us deeper into the reptilian brain's responses to our more primitive survival responses, and you can counter them. The first one is fear. The news is 
replete with stories about the world coming to an end and life is never going to be as we ever knew it before. And, you know, this, this is the end times. And, um, and if you watch the news less <laughs> and, and, and you um, spend a little more time doing things that activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the, the part of us that rests and digests and, you know, prepares for restorative activities. And you can do that by, for example, just carrying a pad and paper around with you. And when you experience the urge to overeat, if you write down, like take out the pad and paper, t- take a deep breath and breathe in for shorter than you breathe out. Like you might Breathe in for seven and breathe out for eleven for a count of eleven, and that um, that tells your nervous system that there's time that we don't have to run into immediate action. And then writing is an upper brain activity, and you know binging is a lower brain activity. So if you just write down what you're craving, without getting into any of the other techniques that we use to help you disempower those urges, if you just write down what you're craving. You're going to be moving the battleground from your lower brain to your upper brain because that's you know where writing takes place. So those are two very very practical things you can do. The second thing that is um, interfering with our ability to remain peaceful and sane about food is the perception of food scarcity. Um, you know, if you just think about how the supermarkets emptied out right away, and like I've never seen—I'm not a meat eater, but I've never seen—I've never seen a supermarket that didn't have meat. I mean, it was it was just gone in a second. And the fact that we all we bought all the toilet paper—I mean, how much more of a? This is not even a poopy pandemic. This I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, why did we buy all the toilet paper? It's we're just just it's it's iconic for our fear response. We, we believe that food is going to be scarce. And if you just take a breath and say, I have everything I need right now. There's, there's a roof over my head. There's food on the table. Um, I've got fresh air to breathe. I've got water. I've got my loved ones. I've got everything I, read I, I need right now. This too shall pass, and it will. Um, and, and tell yourself that it's an opportunity to become stronger in a year when this is all over. And I really hope it's going to be over in a year. If you can say that uh, I faced the monster, I faced these big fears where it seemed like the world was coming apart, and I used, let's say you start with one simple rule. Maybe I never go back for seconds, or I always put my fork down between bites. And I used one simple rule as a grounding practice to find my center as I went through the, the pandemic, you're going to have that experience and that's going to calm you down across your whole life and it's going to make it possible for you to eat better in all sorts of situations. So this is actually a fantastic opportunity to um, take better care of yourself than you ever have. Wonderful. So that's what I would tell people. And I would tell, tell them to go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button so you can get a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format and a free copy of the food plant starter templates for any dietary philosophy, whether it's low-carb, high-carb, vegan, whole foods, whatever it is that you eat, point counters, calorie counters. We've got a plan to get you started. Call them starter templates because I want you to take responsibility and adjust them. And a full set of recorded coaching sessions so that you can hear how this all works in practice. You don't have to say, well, I heard this weird psychologist on Maddie's show who's got a pig inside of him. And I don't know. It's a really strange guy, but it was interesting. <laughs> you, you can actually hear what it's like and, um, and a whole lot more. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. Wonderful. And did you have any social media links uh, to share or the way people can find you online? It's all on the site. If you go to neverbingeagain.com, you'll find all the social media, media links and you'll Wonderful. find the podcast and our coaching groups and our, all of the other books that we've written, um, neverbingeagain.com. Wonderful. I appreciate your time, Glenn. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was an interesting talk, as always. Absolutely. Yeah, we've had a couple of these now, so I'm glad we could get one I know. fully recorded this time. And I, I very much welcome you to come back. Just let me know when. I'll be here. Superb. Wonderful. All right. Before we wrap up, did you have anything more you wanted to share before we finish? 
Peter McWilliams said that you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And and Jim Rohn said a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I think if you put the two of them together, you can see the path. Just pick pick a rule. Um, you know, watch your inner pig, or you can call it a food monster. You don't have to call it a pig. Watch watch it do its best to get you to break it, and then commit with perfection to the rule, but forgive yourself with dignity if you make a mistake. You know, like like if you happen to accidentally touch a hot stove, you're not supposed to say, oh my goodness, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove. You're just supposed to figure out, <laughs> right? You're just supposed to figure out what, how did you miss the stove? How are you going to how are you going to avoid it in the future so it doesn't happen again? Once you've analyzed that and you know what to do, then um, forgive yourself and move on and aim at the target again. Perfect. Thanks so much, Glenn. I'm very grateful for your time and your wisdom, and I look forward to having you back here soon. I hope that you stay safe amidst this unique chapter of history. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, mate. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.